Hey, my name is Brianna, and you're listening to the FCC Grayson Podcast. God is doing some incredible things here at First Church. To learn more about FCC and maybe plan your visit, head on over to FCCGrayson.com. We hope today's message gives you hope, inspires, and encourages you in your walk with God. Let's dive into today's message. This morning, we are going to take a little bit of a break from uh, our series in Ephesians. We're going to be spending the next three weeks, and we're going to be talking about love works. We're going to be taking a look at biblical love, how God's love works in our life. And these next three weeks, we're going to be concentrating on the restoring power of God's love, how we see His love day in, day out, moment by moment, and situation by situation in our lives as He continually restores us. And we're going to be looking at three different characters these next three weeks. Today we're going to be looking at the restoration of Peter. Then next week we're going to be looking at the restoration of Joshua in the Old Testament. So if you'd like to read ahead for that, you can read the story of Joshua. And then in the last week that we take a look at this, the last Sunday in February, we are going to be looking at the story of the woman at the well. So as we are looking and as we are seeing about these stories of God's love restoring us, please keep in the forefront of your thoughts at all times that the example of love that he gives to us is the love that he expects us to love one another with. Amen? Because when we look at it, we start seeing these things in Scripture that Jesus gives us new commands. And they're always about loving. Love God. You know, love me. Love your neighbor as yourself. This command I've given to you. You know, then he talks about there's no greater love than if a man would lay down his life for his friend. I think that if there's ever been a time, in my lifetime at least, where the love of God, not only from the church to the world, But from brothers and sisters in Christ to other brothers and sisters of Christ, if we need to refocus our love to show forth God's love instead of bickering, backbiting, and constantly arguing with one another, if I don't know if there's ever been a time that's been more needed than now. Because I believe it's in the Gospel of John where Jesus says that, I give you this commandment, love one another. And then he goes on to say, for this is how they will know that you are my disciples. And frankly, and we've talked about this a couple times, but I think that it's in short supply for the world to look into the church and see our conversations and see our relationship and go, huh, they truly love one another. I think the question of do we really love God as believers is far often more, it's up in the air more frequently than whether you are a Republican or a Democrat. People know that about you before they know whether you really love Christ or not. So if there's ever a time that we, as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, sons and daughters of the King, co-heirs, co-laborers, inheritors, ambassadors, the royal priesthood, if there's any time that we need to be showing what not only love looks like, but what restoration looks like in love, it's now. 
So that's why we're taking this little three-week break, and we're going to look at these examples of restoration. Now, I want you to also keep in mind that we're looking at different situations to where sometimes it's because the person themselves has gotten, them, gotten themselves into trouble. They need restored because it's their own, own stupid fault that they've gotten there. But there's going to be some cases that we're going to look, and it's not their fault. It's just a circumstantial thing. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. And we're going to read a passage of Scripture. We're going to read verses 15 through 19. And then we're going to spend the rest of the morning talking about why this particular passage is so important. So John, chapter 21, verses 15 through 19 in the ESV says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you this morning uh, for your presence. Thank you for um, the the spirit that we feel in in the house this morning. God, we're thankful for that. God, I pray that uh, that we carry over uh, the same passion uh, for your word that we have uh, for uh, singing to you and, and, and taking communion and giving to you. God, I pray that you would be satisfied with the reading of the word this morning. I pray that all hearts and minds are open and receptive to what you have to say to us this morning. And God, I, I finally, I pray for myself, I pray for me, that you would use me, clear my mind, clear my thoughts, clear my heart, that God, that you and you alone, through your Holy Spirit, speak through me to rightly divide your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a a quick polling of the audience here. How many of you have ever needed restoration from God? That, that, That should be all of us, okay? Now, how many of you have needed restoration from God because of something you've done? As I was sitting and I was thinking this week about, um, about this concept, um, you know, I've, there was a couple times that I just, I would go out, and I remember one time we were, we were in Lexington, and we had specifically gone out as a prayer team just to go out onto the streets just to pray with people. And I remember going up, there was a line outside of a bar, and we just, we stopped the car, we got out, and we started going up and talking to people, started praying with people. And I remembered going up to one younger man still at that point and he was 
he was not at himself completely already, and he was getting ready to go into another bar, which was never a good sign. But I get to talking with him, and I tell him that I'd love to pray for him and that I pastor a church. And he went, dude, you're a preacher? Man, that's awesome. I used to be Young Life. I did Young Life. And then all of a sudden, his countenance changed. You could just see this look of just dread and disappointment. And he went, that's not me anymore. He said, my brother-in-law still does that. Man, he and, he and my sister are still doing some great things. But man, here I am. Yeah, and here I am. And I remember times at youth camp, Idina, a, a high school camp of the summers. And I, I remember over and over and over again so many years, you know, that, uh, that night, you know, that Thursday night right before Friday hits. You know, you've, you're, you've kind of been sustaining on about two and a half hours sleep all week. You've been sustained by camp food all week. You're going on raw energy. And man, that emotional high is just going because you don't know whether to laugh, cry, do both. It doesn't matter. But you get around that campfire and man, you start singing some songs and then the tears just keep flowing. Then it becomes like open mic night, you know, with the kids. And they're like, man, I just got to say something. I just want you to know that over there I got saved. Man, like kids are looking at me going, hasn't he gotten like saved the past three years? And this like same night, like, just, just go with it, just go with it. And you know what? Everybody walks away resolute. Man, we are never doing what we've done again. You know, once we get outside of this bubble, man, we're, we're on fire. And then just a matter of weeks, it seems like the majority of these teenagers fall back in and they're reaching out to the camp staff and we're we're working with them we're talking with them and man they just beat themselves up constantly and you know i've been there more times than i can count this fact that that god sets me on a path that god starts doing something in my life he he answers a prayer he he shows me love when i don't deserve it he gives me blessings when when i frankly shouldn't have them and he starts opening doors for, for me, but yet I find myself that I, I am indeed my own worst enemy. I sabotage things so badly in my relationship with God. I, I hope that some of you can relate this morning to this fact of I sit back sometimes and I wonder, where would I be now if I hadn't been such an idiot back then. So let's insert this story of Peter, and let's learn some things from this story, because I wanted to read you kind of the pinnacle of this story of Peter and Jesus, because this is after the resurrection, this is before Jesus ascends into heaven, and they have this moment. So why is this moment necessary? Well, let's look back into the narrative. Let's look back into the story of Peter just a little bit. Peter's, he was a career fisherman, okay? And there was, at one point, you know, Jesus tells them to cast their nets down, and they've not caught anything, and then all of a sudden they've, they've caught so much they can't even, you know, they're having to get d multiple boats in there and pull them up. And Jesus calls him to follow him, to give up the life and the career of fishing and to follow him. And then I believe that, I've talked to a few people uh, this week, uh, and I've just about everybody that I've spoken to, I've asked them, what comes to mind the most? What comes to mind first when you hear about Peter? 
When you hear about the Apostle Peter and what's happening in the biblical account, what is the first thing that comes to mind? And almost to a person, whether it was the first thing that they mentioned or, or somewhere down the list as we, we continued discussing it, they would say, we feel like he's the most relatable person that we see in the Bible. We feel like that as we read about Peter, we're looking and going, I can, I can relate to that. Because Peter, you know, he's kind of that guy that does the ready, fire, aim kind of thing instead of the ready, aim, fire. You know, Peter, I, I believe that all human beings should be equipped with two filters, metaphorically speaking, two filters, one to filter what's coming in and one to filter what's going out. I'm pretty certain that Peter was missing the filter of what's supposed to go out and what's supposed to stay in. And we see this, this Peter, this guy who is on fire for Jesus, he's one of kind of the inner three, the one who's one of them that's closest to Jesus. And we constantly see Peter over and over and over again falling asleep when he's being asked to pray. Keep watch while I go pray. Peter's like, all right, I got you, I'm good. And kind of like I see some of you all doing out here on Sunday mornings while I'm preaching, you're really into it at first. And you're really determined, like, I am staying awake through his message today. And then I see that slow fade. Just that. And then when the chin hits the chin, huh? Don't think that you're that sneaky that I don't see it. You know, I'm the guy that used to think that my teachers in school never noticed when I was asleep. I know now. But this was Peter's like, I'm, I'm on it. I've got it. Peter was also the one, he saw them, he was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw that awesome miracle. He was with Jesus whenever miracles were happening. Peter's own mother-in-law, he saw, witnessed, he was a witness to Jesus healing her. He was one of them that was quickest to come to Jesus' defense. He was the one that was most passionate to speak up. He was one that was constantly going about his day and his relationship with Christ with zeal and with passion. But yet most of the time, whenever we, we have a record in the Scripture of someone who's messed up or someone who's fallen away or somebody who's stumbled, it's Peter. You know, Peter was the same guy that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was like seeing the servant of the high priest coming up to arrest Jesus. Peter was like, dude, I got a sword. Don't touch him. Here we go. Pop, you know, popped a lobe right off a of dude. He's sitting there, and then Jesus is like, Peter, what are you doing? And you see, Peter's this guy that's, that's got this unrefined love and this unrefined passion for Christ. Peter, this same guy who in one moment may, provides maybe the most powerful answer to the most important question that any of us will ever face. When Jesus was asking his disciples, he said, but who do you say that I am? Because they were reporting to him about some say that you're this, some say that you're that, and Jesus was like, okay, whatever. The important thing is, who do you Say that I am. Peter was the one that spoke up. said, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the one that's come to save us. Peter was also the one who actually got out of the boat. Remember when Jesus came to him walking on water and he beckoned him, he hearkened to them, come to me? 
Peter was the guy that got out of the boat. But we see in both of these things, the same guy that got out of the boat, not too long after he got out of the boat, his, his faith was shaken because he got to focusing on the external circumstances around him and everything that was going on, and he took his eyes off of Jesus, and he began to sink. This same man that answered that you are the Son of God, in a very few moments later, sat around and called Jesus and rebuked him when Jesus said he was getting ready to go to the cross. Peter's like, ha ha! Far be it from me, no crosses here, buddy boy. Not for you, not today. How does Jesus say? Jesus just calls him Satan. Yeah, it's probably not a good sign when the one that you've devoted your whole life to looks at you and goes, devil. So we, we see this up and down, up and down. With Peter. And this moment of such passionate taking up and this most passionate uh, just pouring out of his heart, Jesus is telling them, One of you, one of you is going to betray me, one of you is going to deny me. When he tells Peter that it's going to be him, he's like, Far be it from me, Lord, far be it from me that I would ever deny you. I will. I will go down swinging, man. Give me another sword. I'll hit the guy right now because, again, let's just be honest and let's be real. When Peter cut the ear of the servant off, can we all at least agree that Peter was not aiming for his ear? I've already said at the beginning, what did Peter do for a living before Jesus? He was a fisherman, right? I mean, unless they're pirates, they're not known for their swordsman skills. So I think that Peter, when he was cutting the dude's ear off, I think he was aiming right here. But he would be like me with the sword, just rear back and just swarp at it, man, and just whatever happens, happens. But we've got this guy who's been so passionately standing up for Christ. In those moments, Jesus tells him, he's like, before the rooster crows, third time. Before he crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then we go into this story. When they come and they get Jesus and they take him away, then we see Peter starting to freak out. You ever had moments in your life when things are going a little sideways and you kind of start freaking out? <coughs> 2020? Uh, anyhow. And 2021's not started real great. So I'm just throwing that out there. But Peter started to lose his cool. He started to lose his focus. He started to take his eyes off of Jesus. And we could sit back and say, well, he's already done this a couple times before. He should have learned his lesson. Yeah, so should you. And so should I. Because if, if the Lord tarries through today or something doesn't happen where, where if he doesn't take me home today, I promise you, that at some point in my near future, I'm going to need God to restore me again. And I think it's a safe bet to say you will too. But we see this, this it's, it's a servant girl. There's not even anybody intimidating the first time. It's like some of the disciples go into the house 
And they're like, you know, and John's recording this, so John was probably most likely one of the guys that was walking in, and she recognized them as the disciples. And this servant girl, who's tending kind of the door there, looks at Peter and goes, oh, you're one of his followers too. No, I'm not. You know, it's real imposing, real threatening. But then there's a fire built, and he goes around, and he begins to warm himself by this fire, in which he denies Jesus two more times. And if you look in the Gospel of Luke, guys, one of the most painful, heart-wrenching moments that I could ever think of happens here. Peter denies Christ the third time, and it says that Jesus took notice of him. Here's this man that he has poured his heart out to, sworn his allegiance to, said that he would never deny him. And he's done it now three times. And the Gospel of Luke says that Jesus turned and he took notice of him. Mike, he looked at him just like I'm looking at you right now. And then the rooster crowed. And it dawned on Peter. It hit Peter. How would you feel if the last interaction that you had with the person whom you cared maybe more deeply for than anyone else in your life, if the last memory that they had of you and you had of them was you denying that you even knew them. Because that's what happened to Peter. And I don't know what happened in between, because Peter kind of goes AWOL after this. We don't see him at the foot of the cross. We don't see him preparing the grave, getting the, the tomb ready. We don't see any of that. So Jesus, beaten, tortured, spat upon, mocked, goes to the cross, dies a horrendous death, and that's the last thing that he remembers about you. You don't have a chance to make it right. You don't have a chance to go to Christ and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. You don't have a chance to go to this one whom you've given your whole life to and say, please forgive me because I have fallen short. I've denied you. I've betrayed you. Please forgive me. No, you don't get a chance for that. He dies. But then we see John in his gospel talking about the resurrection. You know, and, and John, the artsy, you know, gospel writer, I love him so much because he's always talking, and, and you have to do this voice or it doesn't count, but John refers to himself so much as the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the one who Jesus loved. You know, that's, that's how John referred to himself. But when they heard reports that the tomb was empty, it was John, and who was the other guy that was in a foot race to get there first? Peter. Let's, let's just put ourselves in that mindset just really quickly, and let's just try to think about what might be going through Peter's mind as he's running to this empty tomb, to see this risen Messiah. Because the last memory he had was over 72 hours ago, well over 72 hours ago, and the last thing that Jesus saw Peter doing was denying him. I don't know, I can't say this without, with certainty, and I'm not trying to say it with certainty, but I can tell you if it were me that that situation was about and I was running trying to be the first to see the resurrected Savior, the first thing I would want to do is fall down on my face and apologize to him over and over again. But for whatever reason in that story, 
they don't get the chance to do that. He doesn't get a chance to make things right with Jesus. It says that Jesus appeared twice already. Peter still not having any record of being able to make it right with Jesus. Because I'm thinking that typically, if I've done something like this, I don't want to have a conversation with someone to ask them to forgive me in front of y'all. Right? Like, we don't want to do this in public. I don't want to go on Judge Jerry, all right, and make this thing right. I want to do this thing in private, but that opportunity never happens. So, if we go back to Scripture, verse 3 of chapter 21, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Amen. Amen. I'm going fishing. But they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Let's look at something here. What's Peter's reaction? He's had opportunities. He's seen the resurrected Christ. There's still no restoration. There's still no opportunity to make things right between the two of them. And Peter, what does he do? I'm going fishing. Yeah, and there's, the commentators are kind of split on this. Some think that Peter was just bored. And that, hey, let's go fishing. I don't, I don't believe that personally. Again, what was Peter's profession leading up to this? He was a fisherman, right? I remember back when the NBA was still something of beauty. Back in the mid-1990s. Oh, the good old days. Remember Michael Jordan retiring and making a, a, a terrible appearance trying to play baseball. And then he holds a press conference to come back. And his words were basically this, I've come back and I'm here today to tell you that I'm going to play basketball. Now, see, if I go up to my wife, <laughs> she always gets this look on her face like, oh, where's he going with this? <laughs> if I go up to her and I go, honey, I'm playing basketball. Her, her, her standard response is like, okay, do you have your back brace? Uh, do you have your knee braces? Do you have the biofreeze with you? Okay, are you going to try to play full court? Please don't try to play full court. Remember what happened last time. So there's not a question that I'm just going to try to go out and recre recreationally, wow, play basketball. But you know what? There wasn't one of us watching that news conference and went, I wonder what he means by that. Does he, does he mean he's going down to one of the parks in Chicago and he's going to play some pickup basketball? No. Michael Jordan was playing basketball because that's what he did. There wasn't a question about that. And I think that's kind of the same situation we've got here with, with the Apostle Peter. I'm going fishing. How many times in your life have you gotten to the place that you feel like you're so far beyond God restoring you that you failed far too, far too often, far too far, and you feel like there's no other option but to go back to doing what you were doing before. Like, listen, I've tried this. I can't. I'm not good enough. I'm not qualified. I cannot live this Christian life because I keep messing up over and over and over again. I'm just going to go back. I go back to the guy in line at the bar. Man, I used to be young life. Now I'm here. 
I think Peter was at the point of frustration that he'd hoped for restoration. He'd seen Jesus a couple times. It still hadn't happened. And I think that he just got this impetuous nature about him, and he just went, I'm going fishing. I'm done. I'm through. I kind of had that Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, that throwing his hands up in the air saying, I quit. We also see in the Old Testament King Saul, the first king of Israel. They anointed him. They had the ceremony for him. They named him king. The next day after the ceremony, they went to look for Saul, and they couldn't find him. You want to know where he was? He was in the fields tending his, his livestock. Saul woke up one morning and was like, I'm a king. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. What's a king? Nobody's explained to me. I, I don't know how to do this. This is not natural to me, so I've got to do something with my day, so I guess I'll just go back to doing what I've always done before. So Peter is at this same spot of, I'm going fishing. And that's it. Who wants to go with me? Guys, I'm done. Let's go. And then it says that they didn't catch anything. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Remember this. This is an important point. They did not know that it was Jesus. It was about 100 yards away. They didn't know it was him. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Now, pause. This is me kind of putting myself and my headspace into this story, thinking about how I'm going to react if this is the case. All right? I've been fishing all night, not caught anything, which is not unusual. It's not unusual. But then day breaks, and some dude standing over there next to a campfire on the beach, he's like, hey, children, excuse me. You know, that, that's when that, that male thing comes in. It's like, children? Call you, when you see a tiger, you go here, kitty, kitty. What do you mean, children? Then he goes, have you caught anything? I just, I see Peter. He's going, have we caught anything? No, we haven't caught anything. It doesn't look like we got anything in here. Some dude standing over there. I'm a professional fisherman. I know what I'm doing. No, we haven't caught anything. And then he sits side of the boat, and you'll find some. Again, it says that they did it, but in my head, I'm still hearing Peter going, let's just turn around and put it over here. Of course, it'll work now. And then it says that the disciple whom, whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. They recognized in that moment that it was Jesus. Again, who's the first one out of the boat? As we read on, it says that when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Maybe, just maybe, Peter is seeing this as his moment. Maybe this is the time, this last-ditch effort. Man, I've tried to go back to doing what I was doing, but now I've got another chance. If I can just get to him before anybody else gets to him, I can make this right. Now, I'm getting, getting ready to close, but I want us to understand three, three quick things here about this restoration. Okay? Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. 
This is significant here, this word charcoal, and I want to tell you why it's significant. Because this word is only used twice in the New Testament. Two times. One is right here, when Jesus is on the shore and Peter and the disciples meet him there. The other time that it's mentioned is when it's describing the fire that Peter was standing around when he denied Jesus Christ. Folks, can I tell you that sometimes we're taking place, we're, we're taken back to the place in our minds of our greatest failures, not because Jesus wants us to wallow in shame and guilt, not because he wants to keep, heap judgment and condemnation on us, but because he wants us to understand maybe, just maybe he wants us to understand that he is more powerful than any failure that we could ever have. He is far beyond any betrayal that we could ever ever see in our lives. He is beyond any type of denial that we could have towards him. Sometimes we get to this place that if we go back and are reminded of the place of our failure, we immediately begin to help guilt and shame on ourselves. Don't let the enemy convince you of that. Because Jesus is bringing a place He's bringing Peter to a place right here where Peter's mind would have immediately gone back to that denial. Isn't that an amazing concept? Twice in the whole New Testament. But see, we like to believe the lies of the enemy that we're being reminded of things because God wants to punish us. Here's the thing with the enemy reminding you of your past. If you're a blood-bought child of God, if you're following Him, baptized, full of His Holy Spirit, in a healthy relationship with Him, go ahead and let Satan remind you of your past all you want to. And here's why. Because when I'm in a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ and I am truly saved, then my past goes back to the cross of Calvary. And that's it. Because that's where my life began again. So go ahead. Let him remind you of the cross that was the ultimate death blow for him. And we see these Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And you can get into all types of arguments theologically about the Greek of how Jesus changes the word of love that he uses here. And I think if we do that, that's fine if you want to do it. But don't miss the point that Jesus restored him. He said, do you love me? Yes, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, then feed my sheep. Peter do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then, then tend my sheep. Take care of my flock. How many times did Peter deny Christ? Three times. How many questions, how many times did Jesus ask him that question? Three times. He restored Peter for each denial, all the while, never once looking at him and going, I told you so. Do you know that Jesus would have had every right to do that? Told you so. And it says that they did it around the campfire. Jesus did it publicly with the rest of the disciples around. And then he gives him this. I'm going to ask the praise team if they would to come back up. And he told him that by what kind of death he was to glorify God. One of the things that we see, one of the themes in biblical restoration that we really struggle with is the fact of most of the time 
the person that Christ restores is restored to a greater place than what they fell from. Peter fell from a place of Christ's follower, but Christ restored him to be the rock that the church was going to be built upon. The parable of the prodigal son he was a son to begin with without identity. Then he fell, but when he came back, the father restored him to a greater place than what he left. But here's the danger of this message of restoration. is It's good. It's great. I'll never take that away. It is amazing. But our mind tends to want to go to, oh, if Christ restore me, restores me, then everything's going to be great. No. Christ told him about his death. And described his death as how you're going to glorify God. Just because Christ restores you doesn't mean that you're going to become socially accepted. Doesn't mean you're going to be culturally accepted. Doesn't mean that everything's going to line up. Doesn't mean that you're going to have cash flowing in. If you send us $1,000 and we'll put your name on a brick, doesn't mean that you're buying prosperity. Biblical restoration is restoring you spiritually first. And sometimes that's all. Because when Peter was restored, he was restored spiritually, but he was still an outcast socially. He was still sought after through the culture, and they wound up torturing him and killing him as a martyr for his faith. Don't always think that the restoration that Jesus gives you is going to result in your happiness. It will always lead you to joy in him. But it's not always going to mean that everything's going to line up and all of my circumstances are going to change. So this morning, what is it that you need to be restored for? What place in your life, what area of charcoal can you not get away from? What is that one thing that you just seemingly go back to over and over and over again, almost to the point, and maybe you have, maybe you have, just thrown your hands up in the air, said, I quit, and say, I'm going fishing. 